Monday, November 20th. Today was the day when the science group came over to my house. I guess it was a big deal for me. I had never had anybody over to the house except Joey. But, and who knows if that'll happen again. Henry D. and I set it all up with his brother Wayne. Wayne was due to spray for mosquitoes, so he came by to pick up Teresa, Tino, Henry, and me after school. When he pulled up at Tangerine Middle, I saw that he had already attached the trailer with the sprayer on it. We all climbed into the bed of the pickup and rode over to Lake Windsor Downs in the open air. A fact I neglected to mention to Mom. Everything was cool when we got to the house. I took the group in through the back and introduced them to Mom. Then I led them into the great room. Teresa looked around and said, this is a real nice place. Tino didn't say anything. He didn't look around either. Mom followed us in with a tray of yoo-hoos and started to hover around. Then dad came home early from the office, so she went into the kitchen with him. We dragged some stools into the alcove. I put dad's IBM through its paces, showing everybody the different fonts, colors, and graphics that we could use. I printed out examples of the ones that seemed best for our report. Teresa studied the hard copies like she was picking wallpaper. She said things like, I like this one for the title page, but let's have it in orange. It didn't take long to design the final copy of our report. We still had a half an hour before Wayne would have finished would be finished with his spraying. He had planned to do our street last, so I suggested we go outside while we still could and kick the soccer ball around. That loosened everybody up. Teresa played too. We passed the ball in a big circle. Tino showed off his foot juggling moves. I set up a goal in front of the gray wall, and they took turns shooting at me. Then, like in a rerun of a bad dream, I heard the sound of Arthur's land cruiser racing up the perimeter road. The whole scene with Joey flashed back in my mind. I started to feel sick. I looked over at the patio doors. No one was inside. I could feel the blood draining out of my head. I looked at Teresa and she said, are you okay? I just stared back at her, paralyzed with fear, while the scene rolled on. Eric and Arthur came in through the gate. They were both carrying gym bags. Eric was in the front, followed by Arthur. They stood still and looked at us. Tino, Teresa, and Henry looked back at them, but I couldn't. I just stared straight ahead. Eric pointed to us and spoke with mock admiration. Look at this. I think it's great that these farm labor kids get to spend a day away from the fields. Arthur nodded, slack-jawed. Yeah, it's touching. I looked at Tino. He was glaring his mad dog glare at Eric. I took a step toward Tino and said to him, forget it, Tino. They're not worth it. Tino gave me the strangest look. Was it anger? Pity? He said, forget you. He stalked over to Eric with his fists clenched. He stopped two feet in front of him, totally unafraid, and said, you're a real funny guy. Arthur took a menacing step forward, but Eric extended his right hand toward him, slowly, casually. I watched that hand mesmerized. I watched it move like a snake, a slow, casual snake hand with a gold varsity ring on one finger. Arthur obeyed the hand, but he plunged his own hand into the gym bag and pulled something out, something short, black, and heavy, like a sock filled with lead. A blackjack? Eric held him in place with the hand and said, as casually as he could, I don't think we'll be needing that today, Arthur. Then Eric turned his full intention back to Tino, standing insolently before him. The casual snake smile started to slip from his face. Tino stared at him and spoke as he had before. Funny guy, yeah, I see you on, t on the TV, and I laugh all the time. 
Eric's face started to contort. The snake smile had was gone now, replaced by something else. Bettina kept it up. Yeah, really like that thing you do, funny guy. When you pretend to kick a football and then you go flying in the air and then you land right on your ass. Immediately, faster than I thought he could, faster than Tina thought he could, Eric lashed out, smashing the back of his hand across Tino's face, smashing him so hard that Tino spun halfway around in the air and landed on the grass. Was it hard enough to knock him out? Was it hard enough to kill him? I didn't know. Tino just lay there flat on the grass. Eric stood over him, his face a mask of rage. Then, like a genie sucking back in the bottle, he regained control. He took a deep breath and motioned with his hand toward the gate. Arthur quickly gathered their stuff and started back out. But Eric didn't follow immediately. He stopped in the gateway and stared at me, unmoving, until I dared to return his gaze. When I finally did, when I finally looked right into his eyes, I was surprised by what I saw. It was not hatred or even anger. It was more like sorrow or fear. He gave me that look, then he spun around and left. Henry and I reached Tino as he was struggling to his knees, his hands cupped over his head. I saw a trickle of blood coming down from where Eric's ring had struck him beneath the ear. I was panicked. I wondered if I should call Dad or an ambulance or the police. I looked up at the patio door and saw something move, something white. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a white shirt move. Dad? Dad's white shirt walking out of the kitchen? Could he have seen it? Could he have seen what Eric did? I turned back to Tino and tried to help him up. He pushed me roughly away. He looked around for Teresa. She was still standing by the wall. She had never moved. I heard the sound of Arthur's land cruiser revving up in the driveway and pulling away. They were gone. I tried to get Tino to come back inside, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't talk to me or even look at me. Teresa came over to where we were standing. She walked Tino out through the gate without saying a word. Henry D. and I exchanged one pain look, and then he followed. I walked as far as the gate and watched them. They stood motionless at the curb. Then I heard the rumbling sound of the mosquito sprayer approaching. I saw Wayne stop in front of the house, the cloud of poison still five yards behind him. He pulled off his ant mask, hopped out, and turned off the spray of white fog. Henry got in the cab, and Teresa and Tino climbed back onto the truck bed. They all pulled away quickly, just ahead of the cloud of insecticide. I wandered back into the yard, sick to my soul. I stood in front of the wall, replayed the scene in my head. I tried to slow the scene down to relive it frame by frame. What could I have done? What should I have done? I stared at the gray wall, waiting, waiting for some long dead, long forgotten scene to come back to life. But none did. Nothing came, no answers, no remembrances, no insights. Only the choking white waves of the fog. Tuesday, November 21st. We woke up this morning to unusually cold weather. I ate breakfast across from Dad at the round table. He was reading the sports section of the Times. I was on the verge of asking him, Dad, did you see Eric hit Tino in the face so hard that he nearly knocked him out? But I didn't. I couldn't. I had the words all picked out, but I couldn't say them. I sat there agonizing about it. Why couldn't I tell? I'd ratted out Tino at the carnival. Why couldn't I tell my own parents about Eric? What was wrong with me? What was wrong with all of us? Anyway, I didn't say a word to Dad. I didn't say anything to Mom on the ride in either. Tino and Teresa were both absent from school, so I didn't have to face them. 
Henry D. was there, but he and I managed to avoid each other all day. While I was waiting for Mom to pick me up, I thought briefly about asking her to help me. But try as I might, I couldn't think of anything any good that could come out of it. Even if she believed me completely, what could she do? Get Eric to issue a phony apology to Tino? That stuff doesn't play in tangerine. Anyway, who's to say she would do anything about Eric? She's never done anything about him before. So Mom and I rode out of tangerine the same way we rode in, in silence. Mom has a lot on her mind these days, worrying about not only our home, but every other home in Lake Windsor Downs. Now that the soccer season is over, I'm back to accompany her on her endless errands. This afternoon's first stop was out of our climate-controlled star- storage bin at on Route 22. When we reached the storage place, Mom finally said, Hey, why doesn't Joey Costello come over anymore? Did you two have a fight? Yeah, I guess so. What was it about? A girl? No. Then what was it? I thought about that one for a long time. thought about Joey's attitude on the first day. I remember what he said about Teresa, and I finally said, You're right. It was about a girl. Mom unlocked the garage-type door and waited for me to hoist it up for her. She went over to some boxes marked winter, put her key down, and scanned the labels on them until she found the one marked sweaters, etc. She said, here, give me a hand. Went over to the stack and lifted the top two boxes so she would remove the third one. As Mom handed it over to me, she said, do you smell that? There's insecticide in here, too. Yeah, that's life in Florida. Mom quickly headed back out into the fresh air. Tell me about it. I hate that smell. Lifted the sweaters, etc. box onto my shoulder, stepped outside, and pulled the bin door down. It clicked and locked. Mom patted the pockets of her jeans. Oh, no, what? My key. My key is inside. Must have some way to let people in. Do they have a master key in the office? Mom looked shocked. I hope not. This is supposed to be our private space. They're never supposed to come in here. Then how would they get in to spray for bucks? Mom thought about that. They wouldn't. She snapped her fingers. Eric, Eric has a key. He can stop in here and get mine. We climbed back into the car. I said, why does Eric have a key? I don't know, honey. He just asked for one. You can have one too if you want. I said, I don't need one. Where are we going now? I have a to be at the high school at four o'clock. I have a meeting. I figured you could watch the football team practice, okay? What's the meeting about? It's about Eric. I'm meeting with his guidance counselor. Yeah, why? What do you do? Do? Nothing, Paul. I mean, there's no incident that they called me about. If is that what you mean? Yes. Why? Why would you say that? I thought because Eric's a psycho, Mom. Do you really not know that? But I didn't say that. Mom and dad don't like it when I say things like that. Mom asked again, has Eric done something that I need to know about? I thought to myself, that you need to know about? And I answered honestly, no. Mom nodded. Then she explained, this is more of an academic conference. Eric's grades have slipped. Mom looked at me and added, it's not unusual for an athlete during the season to slack off a little. I didn't. What, dear? I'm an athlete. Champion athlete, in fact. And I didn't slack off during the season. We turned on Seagull Way and drove to the south entrance of the high school. Mom parked in the shadow of the steel gray bleachers and turned off the car. She finally said, I know you had a good re- good re- season, Paul. A great season. 
Remember me? I'm the one who drives you back and forth to that place every day. I looked at her, but I didn't say anything. She got angry. Give, me, give some credit where credit is due. Who do you think makes all of this possible? Who do you think holds this whole thing together? Your father? I have the answer to that one. No. She got out and walked inside. I sat in the car for a minute, then moved cautiously toward the sounds of the football practice. I was determined to avoid Eric and Arthur, so I ducked under the bleachers. I picked my way over the steel bars, getting closer and closer to the front until a row of seats was resting on top of my head. To the right, I could see Antoine Thomas and another black guy with huge muscles practicing center snaps. To my left, I could see Eric and Arthur. They were the center of a group of admirers that included Tina, Paige, and a couple of skinny football guys. Just about everyone else was trudging toward the western exit of the field. Practice was over. I watched as the first group of players passed through the opening, the far end of the bleachers, heading toward their cars. Suddenly, a familiar color caught my eye. A green Ford pickup rolled into view and parked in a space near the gate. The old Ford looked odd, out of place among the expensive imports, sports cars, and 4x4s. What was it doing here? Luis Cruz got out and stared intently at the people who were leaving. He stopped one player and spoke to him. The player listened and then pointed down toward Eric's group. Luis started walking in his limping style through the gate and down the sideline. He continued on past Antoine and the muscle man, who were now sitting on the bleachers watching him. What was he doing here? He stopped right in front of my hiding place and waited. Eric and his group had gathered up their gear and were preparing to leave. Luis stood in their path like the brave sheriff of a town full of cowards. When Eric's group got close enough, Eric call, uh, Luis called out, Which one of you is Eric Fisher? He looked right at Eric. Is that you? Eric opened his eyes wide in mock terror. He turned to Arthur and said, We may have a situation here, Bauer. The others in the group seemed amused. Arthur started to walk slowly west. His hand fumbled inside his gym bag. Louise continued in a loud voice, I think you are, but I think you're not man enough to say so. The, an ooh sound rose up from the group. Eric just smiled and met Louise's stare. Louise held his arm, long arms out and extended his palms. You would smack a little kid in the face, right? Why don't you come over here and try to smack me? The ooh grew louder. Arthur Bauer was still walking forward with his head down, but Luis was not was paying no attention to him. He called out again, come on, why don't you try to smack me? Arthur reached Luis, turned, and whipped the blackjack around with a loud whack against the side of Luis's head. Luis's arms shot up to cover his head as he staggered to the right and fell on one knee. Arthur stuck the blackjack back in his gym bag and walked and continued walking as if nothing had happened. Eric walked quickly past Luis. He explained for the benefit of his group, Arthur takes care of all my light work. Eric and the rest of them caught up with Arthur at the gate. I could see that they were laughing. Antoine and the muscle man were not. They stood up and walked out to Luis and examined his injury. From where I was, I couldn't see any blood. They helped Luis to his feet and talked to him a few minutes. Then they walked with him to his truck. Luis seemed pretty steady. I remained frozen in my spot as he got back in the Ford and drove off. I don't know how much later it was. Mom came out with her from her conference and found me there. She called out, Paul? 
Are you playing under there? What are you doing, hiding? I pulled myself together and I picked my way back over the steel bars. We drove all the way home in silence, except for one remark. Mom said, the conference went well. The guidance counselor thinks football stardom business has gone to Eric's head. She thinks he'll be better off once football season is over. And it is nearly over. Nearly over. In our family, it's never over. The dream lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 12 months a year. The dream has four years at a big-time college ahead of it. And then, who knows? Maybe the NFL. Thursday, November 23rd, Thanksgiving. Yesterday morning, I dug out my old Houston Oilers hooded sweatshirt, thick pair of corduroy pants, and a wool shirt that has been always been too large for me to wear. The weather has turned very cold and very windy. The guy at my on my clock radio said it was, it, called it a Thanksgiving freeze. Down in the kitchen, the TV weather girl called it a fall freeze. I answered the phone on the kitchen wall and heard my grandmother's voice. Paul, you're on CNN again. They're having record cold temperatures down there. I know, Grandma. She made some more small talk with me about that cold in Florida versus the cold in Ohio. Grandpa got on the extension, and the two of them asked me about myself, about my school, about my friends. That's one thing about Grandma and Grandpa. They couldn't care less about the Eric Fisher football dream. They never, ever mention it. And when Dad brings it up, they do their best to change the subject. Mom got up, took the phone away, shocked a little, but mostly listened while Dad, Eric, and I sat and ignored each other. Then she said, great, we all look forward to seeing you then. Mom hung up and announced to us, Grandmom and Grandpop are coming by on their way to Orlando. Dad asked glumly, when? A week from Sunday. For how long? An hour or two. Is that all? Dad perked up. Is that all? They booked a week at Epcot. They just want to stop in to see our new house. Dad thought about this. So they can drive to Florida to see Mickey Mouse, but not to see their own grandson play football. Mom was ready for him. Well, maybe we can talk them into changing their plans. Dad managed a weak smile. Mom turned the conversation back to the unseasonably cold weather. She said, I'm going out to the storage bin today to get winter clothing for all of us. If there's anything in particular you want, let me know. Dad said, whatever you packed up in Houston, I'm sure that's okay. Mom said, Eric, you'll need to give me your key. We locked mine in the bin yesterday. Eric looked up, oh yeah, I got it in my locker at school. What's it doing there? I need it now. It's where I keep a lot of my stuff. Okay, how about how can I get it? I'll bring it home today. I could see that mom didn't like that answer, but she was stuck with it. On the way to Tangerine, she started thinking out loud. I'm sure they have some way of letting their customers in, get into those bins. I'm sure I'm not the first person in history to have locked a key inside. We pulled up to the school. There were no karate kickers, no gangsters. There were no human beings of any kind hanging around outside. Kids from the cars ahead of us sprinted into the building like the, with their heads down, clutching their books to their bodies. I didn't. Stood outside the car door, unflinching like a northern kid. Mom asked, 
What winter clothes should I bring for you? I don't know. What do I have? She looked at me up and down. I swear, Paul, you've grown half a foot this year. Probably don't have anything that fits, including what you have on now. Thanks, Mom. Are you at least warm? Yeah, I'm at least that. Okay, you better get inside. I'll see you later. I walked into the building. In those uh, few yards, my ears had turned red and raw by the wind. A lot of kids were absent from first period. Whips, I figured. By second period, though, I realized that something bigger was going on. At least 10 kids were absent from science class. So many kids that we had to waste our time with worksheets. I walked over to Henry D.'s desk and asked him, Where is everybody? Are they all sick? No, I reckon they're out fighting the freeze. What? What does that mean? It's a tradition in Tangerine. Kids from families that are in the citrus business or the vegetable business can stay out of school whenever there's a freeze. Their families need them to help. It's like a snow day? I don't know about that. The kids aren't playing. They're out working. I remember my daddy and my granddaddy talking about getting out of school to fight the freezes. What do you fight with? Anything you got. Most people around here have are small growers. They use whatever. They haul old tires out and start a bonfire in the grove. They burn up old brush. They do anything they can to create heat and smoke. So all of these kids are out building bonfires? Some of them are. They might be out filling up the smudge pots or hauling out pipes with wa for the water pumps. Whatever a family has to fight with, that's what the kids are working on. Do you think that's what Luis and Tino are doing? Most definitely. And Victor and those guys, they're trying to save those golden dawn tangerines and the rest of the trees out there. Immediately, without a doubt, I knew what I had to do. I said, can your brother drive us out there today? Henry looked at me uncertainly. I expect he can. What do you say we go help them fight the freeze? Henry thought it over and nodded. Yes, I suppose we should. He added, we're all war eagles. We shook on it, and I went back to my seat. The rest of the day dragged by. Henry told me some more about the freezes and the tangerine. He explained that the first night is dangerous, but the second night is the real killer. The trees are injured already. They're weak and vulnerable. Luis and his crew had probably worked all night in the groves. They would sleep during the day, and then battle would resume at sunset, and we would be there. I called mom at lunchtime, but she was out. I left this message. Mom, we're having a combination science meeting and sleepover at Tino's house. I have a ride there with Henry Dilks. I hope that's okay to go because I already said I would. The good news is that you don't have to pick me up after school. I'll call you when I get there. Bye. After last period was over, I looked out to, of the second floor window. I was a little worried that mom had not gotten the message or that she had gotten it and was not buying it. Anyway, when I stepped outside, mom's car wasn't there. Car riders were once again running panic-stricken through the punishing gusts of wind. I followed Henry across the street to where Wayne was parked. Henry pulled his hood on against the stinging wind, so I did the same. We climbed into the cab, and Henry said, we're not going home, Wayne. We're going back out to the Tomas Cruz Groves. Can you take us? It was all the same to Wayne. He smiled. Yeah, I'll take you. I got to go right back to work, though. These emergencies all over the county are on account of the freeze. I don't know when y'all I can pick y'all up. 
That's all right, Wayne. We don't need to be picked up. We're going to help them all out in the groves tonight. Wayne looked at me with genuine surprise. Is that right? You're going to get out in that nasty cold? Wayne wouldn't say it. He was too polite, but I knew what he was thinking. How come you're not back at Lake Windsor Downs with the rest of them, complaining about the mosquitoes and the termites and the muck fire? We pulled off Route 22 at the Tomas Cruise sign and bumped down the dirt road. The cattail pond now had steel gray and rust brown pipes running up from it toward the groves, like someone had connected straws together in four crooked lines. Wayne pointed at them. Looks like they're icing down their new grove. What's that? They pump water over the trees all night long, probably a quarter of the grove at a time. This was all new to me. I shook my head. Why is that a good thing to do? Wouldn't that kill the trees sooner? Wayne answered patiently. If you cover them with ice, their temperature will never drop below 32 degrees. 32 degrees won't kill a tree. 31 degrees will. It stays that cold long enough. So why don't they just ice all the trees and be done with it? Probably because they don't have the water or the pumps or the sprinklers to do it all. It's expensive enough to do one part, even when it might not work. Even then it might not work. The ice has to be kept just like slush. If ice gets thick and hard on a tree, that'll, that thing will crack in half like a Thanksgiving wishbone. So what if they start this slush thing and they run out of water? That won't happen. That there's a spring-fed lake. It just keeps filling up. Now they might run out out of diesel fuel. Water won't do you any good if you can't pump it to where you want it to. Look over there. Wayne pointed at something that I hadn't noticed before. On the rising ground behind the house, barely visible from the road, was a vertical orange tank 20 feet high. It looked like a giant can of frozen orange juice stuck there on its side. Tanks full of diesel fuel. That fuels your life's blood tonight drove around the house and stopped outside the Quonset hut. Luis and his father were standing by the back door. They were both dressed in layers of old clothes, and they both had blue-knit ski caps pulled down over their ears. Wayne waved to him and pulled it away. Luis said, what can I do for you guys? I thought of Luis facing down Eric and his gang at the high school. I answered earnestly. We want to help you fight this freeze tonight. We'll do anything we can. Luis looked at Henry, then back at me. His doubts seemed to be directed at me. So were his words. Why do you want to do that? I don't know what to say. Was he looking at me as Eric Fisher's brother? Was I now the enemy? Tino came out of the house and I thought of Henry D's line. I said, because we're all war eagles. Luis turned to his father and said a few words in Spanish. Moss Cruz walked up to me immediately and stretched out his hand. He said, thank you for your help. He shook hands with both of us and continued into on into the Quonset hut. Luis said, our daddy thinks that's great, but he doesn't worry about the insurance and stuff. Do you guys have your parents' permission to do this? We both nodded. Finally, Luis shrugged. Okay, you're on Tino's crew. He'll show you what's up. He looked directly at me like I was the one... It was the potential lawsuit. But you're responsible for your own health and safety, right? If you get too cold, you come into the hut here and you warm up. If 
You get too tired, you come in and lie down. Luis went inside, leaving us with Tino. He was dressed like I was, but his sweatshirt said, Miami Dolphins. He had a walkie-talkie in one hand and a white bag from Kmart in the other. He was all business. He said, there ain't no lying down on my crew. You got that? Yeah. Anybody has to do any bathroom stuff or anything like that, you do it now. I half raised my hand like I was in school. I have to make a phone call. Tino opened the door, led us into the coin set hut. It had been transformed. Most everything that had been here last week was gone, replaced by hundreds of baby trees about one a foot high. We marched through them to the far end. The desk was still there, but now it had a big aluminum coffee urn sitting on it with styrofoam cups, creamer, and sugar spread around it. I picked up the phone and called mom. I said, I tried to call before. Were you out at the storage bin? She didn't sound too happy. She said, yes, I was. Did you need Eric's key? No, I filled out a form and the manager let me in. Uh-huh. Mom didn't say anything else. Was she angry at me? Was she going to come and drag me home? I changed the subject. So what's happening there? She paused a moment as if thinking the whole thing over. Then she changed gears and answered conversationally. Your father bought a case of those fake logs. He's going to get the, the fireplace going and we're going to break out the Christmas music. Uh-huh. We'll probably make some hot chocolate, too. Too bad you're going to miss it. Yeah. Now, what is this thing, Paul? A sleepover party? Why didn't we have any notice about it? I wasn't invited until today. I half-covered the mouthpiece and whispered, I don't know. Maybe I was an afterthought. You don't have a change of clothes. You don't have a toothbrush. I'll use my finger. There was a long pause. And then a long sigh. Paul, I, tr I trust people. I trust them until I have a reason not to. Do you understand me? I understand. There was another long pause and some mumbling. Your father says you have to be back here by nine tomorrow morning. It's Eric's last game. Okay, you can pick me up at eight if you'd like. I hope I can find that place. Look for the sign that says Tomas Cruz Groves. The door at the far end of the hut burst open. Victor, dressed in black sneakers, pants, and hood, like a cat burglar, walked in, followed by his boys. I said, I have to go now, Mom. Enjoy your fireplace and all. She didn't say anything else, so I cradled the phone. Victor, Hernando, and Mano went right to the stack of shovels that were piled up next to the baby trees. Tino said to Henry, should have been here last night. We must have hauled a ton of dirt from the old grove to the Golden Dawns. He pointed to the stack and said, grab a shovel. Then he held up his Kmart bag. Check it out. Tino dumped out a pile of thick black work gloves onto the desk. Everybody grabbed a pair and pulled them on. Tino was smiling. I bought 20 pairs of these gloves for you boys with delicate hands. Victor said, yeah. I'll mess up your face with some delicate hands. Tina said, my daddy and my uncle Charlie are out in, in the Cleopatra Grove starting the fire. They're going to call us out to haul tires and brush. Luis is going to stay in the new grove and run the pumps. He's going to call us to chop ice off the trees. He smiled at Victor. In our spare time, we're going to do what we did last night. We're going to keep the golden dawns packed with dirt. 
Then Tino extended one gloved hand toward us and held it there, just like Victor did before each soccer game. We crowded in and put our hands on top of his. He said, you know what's up? Time and temperature. Luis says it's going to be 10 hours of hard freeze tonight. Trees are going to die no matter what we do. We got to save what we can. Victor said calmly, let's do it. And the circle broke up. We filed outside with our shovels onto into the cold sting of wind. The sun was dropping in the sky. The temperature was dropping too. We headed into the old grove of trees, now bare fruit, the grove of the Cleopatra tangerines. Their leaves seemed to be withering, shriveling. We walked through the sights and smells of last night's battle to the high point of land. Tino gestured into in a small, a slow circle. Check this out. The trees in this spot were all were tall, weathered, and cracked. Haunted house trees. Louise says to use these to keep the, um, the brush fire going. Daddy and Tio Carlos will do the chopping and we'll do the hauling. Tino looked at Henry D. These trees are all dead. We call them the lightning trees. They're at the highest point in the grove so that you'll get, so they get zapped by lightning. They've been dead for years. We don't chop them down though because they act like lightning rods. I hope we'll get away with just chopping down one or two for the fire tonight. Tino started downhill, and we followed. Henry pointed out a line of metal contraptions that were about four feet high. Each had a wide, round base and a narrow stovepipe sticking up from it. Those are the smudge pots. Where do you see them when they're burning? Fire comes shooting out of the tops of them. He called out, Tino, are we going to be hauling the diesel for this, these smudge pots? Ain't nobody else going to do it. Tino turned at the end of the row and stopped, pointed out a skinny three-sided wooden box about five feet tall. Henry and I looked inside. It was a glass thermometer attached to a, a white metal plate that had Pepsi written across it. The temperature read 35 degrees. You see these at different spots, high spots, low spots inside the groves. I call Luis the temp with the temperatures, and he calculates what we have to do and how much time we have to do it in, time and temperature. As we approached the lowest point in the grove, the trees began to look scorched. They smelled like smoke and rubber. We reached a clearing that had obviously been, made, been the site of a fire the night before. Tomas Cruz and his brother were placing dead branches in a crisscross pattern, laying the foundation for tonight's fire. A revolting smell of burnt rubber seeped up from the debris. Tino pointed, poked at his uncle as we passed by. Que pasa, tío? De salvas, he replied. We emerged from the old grove into the wide square field of the Golden Dawn Tangerines. How different this field looked now. Tino and his crew had dumped a thousand small mounds of dirt in here. Like a thousand giant anthills, they covered up all of those black irrigation hoses. Each little tree was now packed with dirt about a foot high, about with a few green leaves sticking out at the top. Tino spoke again to Henry. 
We have to make sure that these trees are packed above the bud union right here and pointed to a spot halfway up one of the dirt mounds. If we don't, the golden dawns are dead and we've got ourselves a thousand rough lemon trees. You pause for emphasis. That can't happen. We continued along the back of the square field until we entered the new grove. There were twice as many tall, skinny sprinklers at this point as, as last time. In the distance, I could see that one part of the grove was already being watered by them from high, from high above. We walked toward the sound of the diesel pump until we came to a rickety, corrugated iron shed. Kind of a lean-to that was open at one side. Luis was inside it, looking at the dials on the pump and making notes. We formed a group around him. And he said, tonight's the night, homeboys. All over this town, all over this part of the state, people are going to hurt by this freeze. It's a killer. It's going to kill right down to the wood, right down to the ground. He looked up at us. Actually, he looked up at me. He said, you understand the plan, right? We're icing the new grove. We're packing the golden dawns and we're burning the old grove. What's alive in the morning is what's alive in the morning. Pointed at Victor. Did you guys get some rest? Yeah, we crashed all day. You ready for another night of this? Sure. You know, we're always ready to rumble. Yeah, I know that. Just be careful, all of you. Luis looked out to the west, so we all turned to look with him. The sun was sinking low. The Cleopatra trees stood black in the orange light like Halloween cutouts. The temperature was dropping by the minute, and the wind was whipping up. I thought about my phone call to mom. In Lake Windsor Downs, the people were inside welcoming the freeze with hot cocoa and fake logs and Christmas CDs. In Tangerine, the people were heading out to fight it with shovels and axes and burning tires. That turned out to be our last moment of peace. For the next 12 hours, we waged a fierce and increasingly desperate battle to save the Cruz family trees. We began with the smudge pots in the old grove. A hundred smudge pots had to be filled with fuel, fired up, and kept burning all night. We set out in pairs to do it. Henry and I were given two gas cans and a lighter and we soon figured out what to do with them. The smudge pots were hellish machines, belching foul-smelling smoke and shooting a dangerous wild flame up out the top like upside-down rockets. We made hundreds of trips to, to the big orange diesel tank. Diesel generators pumped the water that Luis spread over the new grove. Diesel generators lit the new grove and the golden dawn field. Whenever we weren't responding to a crisis, we were hauling diesel. But there was one crisis right after another. The crisis might begin with a call from Tomas that the brush fire was going out. We'd take off in a run through the Cleopatra Grove, choking on the smoke, tripping in the dark. Tomas would be there hacking apart a lightning tree, and we'd drag the dead limbs to the bonfire. Then we'd run back to the diesel tank. Soon Luis would call, and we'd take off for the new grove. We'd use our shovels and to scrape at trees that were getting too heavily coated with ice, trees that were about to crack. On and on it went like that, repacking dirt, hauling tires. We battled against the ever-dropping temperatures. 30 degrees, 28 degrees, 26 degrees, and we were losing. The fire in the old grove was blazing high and wild, wild scorching the leaves off 
everything, anything near it. By midnight, we had chopped down four lightning trees. The ice was forming too rapidly in the new grove. The coatings on the trees were too thick. The loud crackling, crack, cracking sound of trees splitting off branches like amputated limbs or splitting in two like they'd been poleaxed hung horribly in the frozen night air. We were losing. For all of our frantic efforts, the temperature continued to drop. Must have been about two o'clock when I saw Tino and Victor standing in front of one of those Pepsi thermometers. Victor was screaming at it, 24 degrees, 24 degrees. It was like his frozen breath was spelling out the awful words. Tino got off the walkie-talkie with Luis and announced, Luis says this, if it stays 24 degrees for 10 more minutes, then it's all over. He's calling it off. We're all going home. I stopped in my place in a row of golden dawns. And I set down my can of diesel. One by one, I pried my black gloved fingers back, trying to straighten out my warped hand. For the first time that night, I felt the cold and I felt exhaustion. I dropped to my knees on that frozen piece of earth, weary to the core of my body. I looked over to my left. The new grove was glistening like an angel on a Christmas tree, lit from within by the light of the diesel generator. Every tree dripped frozen icicles from the top down to the bottom. And the glow of all of them together was more beautiful than anything I'd ever seen. To my right, the smudge pots and that coated, that bloated bonfire were spewing out over every living thing. I saw Tomas and his brother emerge from the black and billowing smoke, marching toward Tino. I turned back and saw that Luis was coming down too. They all met the thermometer and talked for five minutes. Finally, Tomas and his brother broke away and marched back into the scorched grove. Luis said one more thing to Tino and then went back to his duties. I got back up to my feet as Tino called us to him. He announced, our daddy and Tio Carlos are going to keep trying. Luis says that the rest of us have to go inside right now. He'll call me when we can come back out. We all trudged obediently over the Quonset hut. I walked inside, felt the blessed heat, and collapsed on the floor. Victor picked me up into a sitting position. Then Teresa appeared in front of me with a cup of coffee. She said, do you like cream and sugar? I shook my head numbly, dumbly and said, I don't know. She smiled. Let's find out. I tried to take the cup from her, but my fingers wouldn't close around the handle. Teresa stooped down held the cup to my mouth, and I took a sip. It made me shiver. I took another, and then another. Finally, I was able to hold the cup in my hands. Tino said, Fisherman, last time you were here, you collapsed because it was too hot. Now you're collapsing because it's too cold? What's up with you? Couldn't even think of a reply, much less make one. I sat there in a kind of coma for a long, long time. Finally, Tino's walkie-talkie crackled to life. I heard him say, All right. That's what we're waiting to hear. He turned to Victor. Luis says, the new grove is holding steady at 29 degrees and the high spots in the old grove are showing 28. He says that the worst is over. The temperatures aren't going back up. The temperatures are going back up. Victor and Tino clasped hands, but Victor was solemn. So how much dead wood you got out there? I don't know, man. Anything in those low spots has had it. He turned to include me. 
It's got too cold down there for too long. But hey, we're still in business. Tino, Victor, and the boys got up to go back out, so I struggled to get to my feet. Tino turned to Teresa. No way he's going back outside. Orders from Luis. Teresa pointed a certain finger at me. You heard that. Now don't move from there. I'm going to go go get you some blankets. I could barely move. I could barely speak. But suddenly, Luis entered, and I knew I had to. He said, Paul, are you all right? I looked up to him and tried to focus my eyes. I stared hard at his left temple. There it was. I could see it in the light. It was a dark red bruise, deep set, like a birthmark. It curved over his eyebrow like a dark red crescent moon. I whispered, yeah. Tino said you were in bad shape. I was a little frozen. I'm okay now. Do you want to go to the hospital? No, no way. Feeling better already. He studied me doubtfully. I blurted out, listen, Luis, we only have a couple of minutes, and I have to tell you something. I saw you at Lake Windsor High School. I saw what you did. Luis straightened up. I saw you face down Eric and those other guys, and I saw Eric, uh, Arthur Bauer hit you with a blackjack. His hand moved automatically up to his temple. Is that what it was? Yes, and you have to be- believe me, Luis. They're dangerous. They're very dangerous. Luis, to my amazement, smiled. He was about to reply when the door at the far end opened and Teresa returned. He just said, I'll talk to you about this later. Teresa came up and handed me two thick green blankets and a white pillow. Luis went back out and I crashed. The next thing I knew, it was 630 and the crew was coming back in. Henry D. said to me, the sun's coming up. We made it through the night. I pulled off the blankets and stood up, humiliated. But Tino came right up to me and said, hey, fisherman. Thanks for helping us tonight. He held out his hand and I shook it. I said, Tino, I'm really sorry that about what happened. What? Hey, man, you're not used to this kind of work. No, not that. I'm at my house. Tino shook his head. Oh, that. Well, we never should have gone over there. Yes, you should. You should go over there. You're my friends. Or I want you for my friends. You're welcome at my house. Tino nodded and then said, you can be our friend over here. All right. I shrugged and nodded. He added, our daddy's driving to the takeout for for some Egg McMuffins. You down with that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, and Luis says he wants to see you outside. All right. I went back out and found Luis kneeling by a golden dawn tree with his face buried in the green leaves. I said, can you smell anything now? He laughed. Yes, I can. He sat back and looked at me. I can smell what it will be like. So the Golden Dawns have survived? Oh, yeah. They all survived. They were the safest ones. When you're little like this, you can we can just cover you up with dirt. You'll be okay. He checked behind me and said, I want to finish our conversation because I want you to know what's going to happen. Okay. You know that those two black dudes who were over there, one of them is Chandra's brother, Yeah, Antoine Thomas. Right. Well, Antoine and the other dude, the muscle man, don't care much for Eric Fisher or his friend. I said, Arthur Bauer? Right. They told me to come back on Monday, and we'd take care of business. They said that all the players have to be there on Monday to turn their their equipment in. Is that right? I don't know. That sounds about right. I'm just telling you this so you'll know. You seem kind of scared of Eric and Arthur Bauer. Yeah, I am. Who wouldn't be? Luis answered simply, 
I wouldn't be. They're punks. He joined. He pointed one rope-like finger at me. And you shouldn't be either. You watch what happens on Monday. If Antoine keeps his word, two punks are going to have new attitudes right around three o'clock. Luis's uncle walked up and started talking to him. So I drifted back inside thinking about my fear of Eric. How could I how could I be t- so totally afraid and Luis be not the slightest bit afraid of the exact same thing? Which one of us saw it wrong? Teresa brought out a nine-inch portable TV and we all gathered around it to eat our egg McMuffins. The news people said that the cold front was now moving out of our area, but it had left a lot of damage behind, and it had put some area growers out of business. They showed pictures of a grove that had been iced over. It was now dripping in the sun. Everyone in the hut watched in silence. After the news, Victor and his boys headed for home. I stood outside and waited for Mom. She pulled up right at 8 o'clock. Her first words were, Did you stay up all night? No, I slept. Paul, you look awful. I slept, Mom, but I think I'm coming down with a cold. Mom reached over and put the back of her hand against my forehead. Yeah, you and half the population of Blank Windsor Downs. She sighed. Well, I'm not going to have you sitting in the freezing cold football stadium. You need bed rest. You're right. I'd be better off at home. Mom thought it for a minute and added, Your father isn't going to like this. I know. Just tell him I need my sleep. Mom sighed again. I will, but you'd better sleep. I will, and I will, just like the rest of the crew. But first, I had to write this all down. Friday, November 24th. I slept for 18 hours yesterday. No one woke me up to go to the game? That was good. No one woke me up for Thanksgiving dinner either. That was weird. It was 4.30 on my alarm clock when I finally opened my eyes. I lay there in the dark for another hour, then got dressed and went down to the kitchen. I was starving. As I was finishing a turkey sandwich, I heard the sound of the newspaper plopping out onto the driveway. I walked outside. The air was cold, but nowhere near freezing. The wind was blowing from west to east, blowing the smoke of the muck fire through the starry sky. I walked back inside with the Times and sat on the floor of the great room. The headline of the sports section was, Lake Windsor defeats Tangerine. Underneath that, it said, Antoine Thomas throws for three touchdowns, runs for two in a 30 to nothing route. I started to read about it, but then Dad wandered through in his pajamas on the way to the kitchen. He stopped and scowled at me. He said, thought you had a cold. I don't hear any coughing or sneezing. I answered, sorry, Dad, but I'm feeling better today. We locked eyes for a few seconds, then he continued into the kitchen. When he came back out, he had a cup of coffee, and he had lost the scowl. He sat down on the floor next to me and began to talk about his favorite subject. He didn't miss much of a game. You know the big center, Brian Baylor? See the one who hangs out with Antoine? Right. He's been snapping the ball to Antoine perfectly all year. Yesterday, I guess he forgot how. The kicking game stunk to high heaven, and it all—it was all because of him. I think Coach Warner should have benched him. Dad pointed to the sports section. Do they even mention Eric in there? No. They just say that the score should have been higher. But Lake Windsor missed all five extra points. 
Dad's eyes shot fire. Missed extra points? Is that what it says? Eric didn't miss anything. He never even kicked the ball. Ball never got anywhere near him. Brian Baylor made five bad snaps in a row. I couldn't resist. I said, well, at least we won. That's the important thing. Dad didn't even hear me. He was shaking his head back and forth. Would have been nice to finish the season on a high note with a big game. But this Baylor kid ruined it. He took a sip of his coffee. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't used to snapping the ball to Arthur. Arthur? You mean the coach actually put Arthur Bauer in the game? Oh, yeah. Put all the seniors in. It was their last game, and it was a blowout. Of course, he was going to play them all. He pointed at the paper. Is Antoine the big story? Yeah, he's pretty much the whole story. Dad brooded about it. He finally said, it's like Brian Baylor did it deliberately. Like he wanted to make Eric and Arthur look like fools. All five snaps were wild. They were high or wide or they bounced before they got there. He made Arthur jump for it or die for them or chase them down. Last one went so high that Eric had to run it down himself and fall on it. If those tangerine linemen had been faster, Eric could have gotten hurt. I thought, just wait till Monday. Dad, Eric's going to get hurt. Arthur Bauer, too. We heard Mom in the kitchen rattling some pans, so Dad got up and joined her. I turned to page two and saw the large composite photo with this caption above it. All-county middle school soccer team. I studied the names and faces. I knew them all. Four were from the teams I'd played against. The other seven were from the teams I'd played on. The faces of the players, actually, their school photos were arranged in three rows, the way that a team would pose. Under each photo were the player's name, school, and position. One face, however, was missing. Across the top row, the strikers included Maya Pandy, Gina De- Gino DeLuca, and Tommy Acosa. The middle row of halfbacks included Victor Guzman and Tino Cruz. Across the bottom row, one of the fullbacks was Donnie Elias, and the goaltender was Chandra Thomas. It was Chandra's face that was missing. There was an empty frame where her photos should have been. I stared at them for a long, long time. Did I want my own face to be up there? Yes, I did. Did I want to change what had happened to me this season? No. Not a minute of it. Not ever. Chandra had earned her place on this team. I wondered if she'd felt proud to see her name, if not her photo in the Times. I walked out to the kitchen, found the scissors, and started to cut it out. Mom and Dad looked up. Dad said, what's that? The all-county middle school soccer team. Yeah, are you on it? That question really hit me the wrong way. I couldn't believe he'd asked me that. And yet it was so typical. I answered, sure I am, Dad. They picked me as an all-county bench warmer. He looked annoyed. He sounded annoyed, too. Come on, Paul. Did you make the team or not? We locked eyes again. How many games did I play in, Dad? He pulled back. I don't know. What position did I play when I did get into the game? How am I supposed to know that? Okay, here's one. How many field goals goals did Eric kick this year? He stared at me. And then he blinked rapidly. All right, your point is taken. What's that supposed to mean? It means I understand what you're saying. You're saying that I know everything about Eric's season and nothing about yours. You're right, and I'm sorry. 
Mom looked up at him with interest. All I can say in my defense is that this was a critical season for Eric. College recruiters were watching him. A lot is riding on this season. His entire future in football is riding on it. Mom asked quietly, what if Eric has no future in football? Dad stared at her blankly, so she repeated, what if Eric has no future as the place kicker for some big-time college football team? Dad let out a short, uncomfortable laugh. What are you trying what are you talking about? He looked at mom, then at me, as if we had lost our minds, or worse, as if we'd forgotten the Eric Fisher football dream. He said, as if to two morons, Eric can kick a 50-yard field goal. Mom continued, I know he can. What if that's not enough? Dad answered calmly. Well, what that's not enough. You have to have good grades. You have to show good character. Mom looked down at her coffee. Was she thinking what I was thinking? Did she know that Eric had no good character? Or was she still as clueless as dad? Did she still believe blindly in the dream? No one else spoke. So I went back to cutting up the newspaper. In the column next to the photo, there was a notice, bordered in black, that caught my eye. The annual senior night, oh, senior awards night at Lake Windsor High School will be held Friday evening at 7.30 p.m. at the high school's gymnasium. This year's ceremony will include the dedication of a laurel oak tree in the memory of Michael J. Costello, the Lake Windsor football captain who was killed by lightning on September 5th. I said, do you, do you know about the senior awards tonight next Friday? Dad was still trying unsuccessfully to make eye contact with mom. He answered, sure, we'll all be going. They're honoring Mike Costello and all the other senior players, of course. Bill Donnelly is going to be the master of ceremonies. I folded the sports section back up and handed it to dad. The phone rang and mom picked it up. She looked concerned. She said, no, we just got up. We haven't been outside at all. Then she said, oh my God. She got off the phone quickly and pointed at me. Paul, you're dressed. Check all around the house, all around the outside. What's wrong? That was Sarah from next door. She said somebody has smashed up all the mailboxes and spray painted all over the wall. I went outside and went out the front door. Mom hurried to watch me through the side window in the great room. I saw our neighbor's mailbox first. It was smashed, all right, like an aluminum can, and it was hanging by a thread from its pole. Then I looked over at where ours should have been. All I saw was the pole bent at a cute angle. There was no trace of a mailbox. I looked up and down the street. About every other mailbox had been smashed, probably by a baseball bat. Then I went into the backyard. There was no paint on the side of the wall, inside of the wall. So I climbed up on top of it and vaulted over. I hit the ground, turned around and saw it, swirling lines of white paint, like fake snow against the gray of the wall. I was too close to make out what it said, so I started to back across the frozen mud ruts of the perimeter road. The wind was whipping up. The smoke was in my eyes and my nose. I had to back all the way across from where I could read the message. It said, seagulls suck. I'm not sure what happened next. I stood there staring at the site, breathing in the stench of the muck fire, and I started to get the feeling. I started to remember something, someplace. Where was it? The wind raised up 
brown clouds of dirt in the from the perimeter road and mixed them with the black clouds of the muck fire. The sun started to darken, like the moon was passing in front of it. And I started falling backwards, as straight and as stiff as a tree. That's how Dad found me, stiff and unconscious. He had to pick me up and carry me across the street. He started yelling over the wall to Mom to bring the Range Rover around. I remember telling him, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I was pretty much back to normal by the time they got me to the couch in the living room. Mom said, I'm going to call the doctor. I said, no, no, really, I'm, I'm all right. Dad was totally stressed out. He started yelling at me like it was my fault. What happened to you? What did you do? Did you walk into a car? I said, no, nothing like that. Mom put her hand on my forehead. I said, I don't know. I can't remember. I really can't remember. Mom looked into the back of my eyes and she said, this is all my fault. You had a cold to begin with and then out in that disgusting air. She started into the kitchen. I'm going to make you some tea. Dad stared at me for a few more a few more seconds. Then he joined mom in the kitchen and talked to her about the mailboxes and the spray paint. He said, I bet kids from Tangerine High did it after yesterday's game. They were mad about getting blown out like that. It's probably right. Mom brought, a, brought me a cup of hot tea with lemon. All day long, she and dad kept looking at me and asking me how I felt. I kept saying, okay. That was true, and yet it wasn't. The whole truth is, I feel very weird, but I can't say why. I can't remember why. Not yet. Monday, November 27th. Today was supposed to be the day. Mom insisted that I stay home, although I told her that I felt fine. I thought all day about Eric, about Eric and Arthur. At 10 o'clock a.m., I thought to myself... Eric and Arthur have no idea at this moment that they're going to face Luis again this afternoon and that this time he won't be alone. At noon, I thought the same thing and I thought it again at two. I wondered if Eric would walk through the kitchen door with eyes swollen and black or with his nose broken. I wondered what kinds of questions mom would ask him and would he answer them? I figured that Eric and Arthur would take the time to make up a mutual lie, like they had gotten jumped by 10 guys from Tangerine High. Maybe the same guys who had vandalized our neighborhood. That would sound a lot better than the truth, that their own teammates despised them so much that they helped a stranger beat them up. Anyway, Eric did walk through the kitchen door, but something obviously had gone wrong. He went straight to the refrigerator and grabbed a can of soda. I looked right at his face. What was it a mark on him? It hadn't happened. Something had gone wrong. I was disappointed, but still confident. Something had gone wrong. That was all. I sat down at the kitchen table and tried to think. Could it still happen to Eric and Arthur? When? How? Then it came to me. Yes, it could still happen. It could happen on Friday. Outside of the senior awards night. If Luis asked me about another time and place, that's what I'll tell him. Mom walked in with the phone. I hadn't even heard it ring. She said, no, not ours. She said, not too long, please. I have calls to make before the homeowners meeting tonight. I pressed the button. Hello? Hi, Paul. It's Gary. I held the phone out at arm's length, then shook my head like a wet dog, trying to clear my thoughts. I finally said, hi. Yeah, hi. Uh, I, uh, 
I figured you were never going to call me, so I decided to call you. Uh-huh. Look, I'm sorry. I've been meaning to call you. I held my hands out in a gesture that she would never see. I just didn't. Well, that's okay. Do you want to talk to me now? Sure. I guess the last time I saw you was at the soccer game. You guys have a really good team, a really great team. Thanks. I think it's great that you have girls and boys. Yeah, it was great. Did you see the paper yesterday? I sure did. Three girls from our team made the all-county. I saw that. Yeah, did you see that thing about planting a tree for Mike Costello? Uh-huh. Are you going to go? It's Friday night. Uh, yeah, I'm going. Because I'm going too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. There was a pause. Then she said, Joey's having some kids over at his house afterwards. Would you like to come with me as my date? Didn't hesitate at all. I said, sure. Great. I added, thanks for asking me. Sure thing. Does Joey know that you're asking me? Oh, yeah, he knows. He said, he says we can ride over there with him and Kara. I had a sudden crazy picture in my head. Could Joey be listening to this? Could he be on the extension? Mom came in and pointed at the clock. I said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I'll see you at the gym on Friday. Okay, bye. Great. Bye. Bye. Mom said, who was that? Carrie Gardner from Lake Windsor Middle. We're going over to Joey's house on Friday night after the ceremony. Mom took in this information. She waited, I guess, for more. But I didn't say anything else. So she started making her calls to the homeowners. It didn't sound like too many were interested in her meeting. Mike Costello arrived first about at about 8 o'clock. I answered the door and let him in. He gave me a friendly greeting, as usual. I claimed my seat in the alcove at Dad's IBM. I pulled up the Eric scholarship offers file as Mom and Mr. Costello settled into the living room. Dad had been working on the file again. He had added names and phone numbers of scouts and alumni boosters from the three Florida schools. People from, like Mr. Donnelly and Larry and Frank he has also noted that a press packet from the Times had been sent to these schools. He hasn't added anything more to the other page one schools. And get this, the page two schools are gone, deleted, trash canned. The Houston schools and any other non-contenders for the national title are gone. They have no place in the Eric Fisher football dream. I clicked out of the file and started listening to the meeting. Mom was taking notes as Mr. Costello rattled off a series of items. A Rolex watch, a diamond stick pin, a 24-karat gold bracelet. I logged off and walked into the great room. Mom didn't suggest that I leave, so I joined them. I asked, what are you writing down, Mom? She looked at me with a pained expression. Was I being a pain? These are the items that were stolen from the tinted houses. Dad came in and sat in one of the folding chairs. He didn't say anything to us. He didn't even look at us. It was like we weren't there. He just stared straight ahead at the fireplace like he was waiting for it to flame on. The doorbell rang, so I went to answer it. I let in a group of four homeowners. Mom suggested that they begin the meeting right away, since no other people were expected. It was smaller and friendlier than most homeowners' meetings. The eight of us listened as Mr. Costello read the financial reports. Then he turned to the old business. We have good news on a couple of fronts. All I can say is, thank God for that freeze. He killed off all the mosquitoes, so we were able to cancel that guy with the gas mask and the sprayer. Mom said, thank God is right. The freeze also signals the end of our thunderstorm season. This is the fact that 
Mrs. Fisher and I have both brought to Bill Donnelly's attention. We have suggested a compromise to him, that he remove his string of lightning rods for now and put them back up next summer. He's agreed to think about it. The man from the Yellow Tutor asked, what about the termites? The freeze might have helped there, us there too. I just don't know. Three houses have tents now, which makes a total of 25 so far in the development. And the robberies? Mr. Costello nodded sol solemnly. There were two more robberies of tented houses since our last meeting. In both cases, robbers smashed a window, ran in, and ran out with cash and jewelry. The deputies say they have some leads, and that's all they're willing to tell us at this point. Same man said, I saw a guy sitting outside a tented house with a shotgun. Everyone reacted to that, and he continued. It's one of your neighbors, Jack, sitting outside in the lawn chair all night long with a shotgun across his lap. Mr. Costello said, thanks for telling me. I'll talk to him. If that doesn't do any good, I'll have the sheriff's department talk to him. Can't have that. Everyone agreed. He's going to wind up shooting some late night jogger. The woman from the White York asked, what about the front, Jack? That's kind of looking kind of run down. The front is looking bad because of the freeze. Those plants are supposed to be cold hardy, but nothing is going to come through a freeze like that completely undamaged. The same woman asked, did the freeze kill off the rest of your fish? No, we can't blame the freeze for that. Those koi are cold hardy. That pond should freeze, could freeze a thick, foot thick and they'd be okay under the ice. We believe that some local person stole them and sold them. I said, I don't believe that. They all turned and stared at me as if they had just noticed I was sitting there. Then they all turned back. They're about to ignore me and go on when I added, it doesn't make any sense. He turned toward me again. Think about it. How could some local person, some koi thief from Tangerine, stop at the front of our development in the wide open space without anyone seeing him? How could he fish for, catch, and drive away the string of bright or big orange shiny fish with no one seeing him? Mr. Costello answered, I don't know, Paul. Maybe because he does it in the middle of the night when people are asleep. Anyway, it's the only theory we have, unless you have a better one. The ospreys, I said. They all stared at me blankly. The ospreys, the birds of prey from those big, those giant nests out on Route 89. They swoop down, catch, snatch up the koi, and fly back to their nests. No one sees them. No one thinks about them. No one suspects them. Mr. Costello seemed annoyed. They all did. He said, you've seen this happen? Seen them flying west with the fish in their talons? How do you know they were our fish? They were big and orange and shiny. They all looked at each other. No one spoke. Finally, Mom said to me, Paul, if you knew about this, why didn't you ever tell anyone? No one ever asked me. She looked at me with a pained expression again. Is there anything else that you think we should know, we should ask you about? What do you mean? Do you know anything about the robberies? No. Are you sure? Yes. Mom nodded. She believed me. The rest of them now seemed to be waiting for me to leave. So I got up. She winked at me and said, thanks. Good night. As I started out, I heard one of the homeowners ask, did anybody see the eyewitness news team report on the sinkhole? The one where they found out the county never surveyed the construction site? Why can't we get eyewitness news team out here? They can shoot pictures of the muck fire. We show them to the county and demand action. The guy looked around for support. Nobody moved. 
He added, and if that doesn't work, we can sue the county. Mr. Costello half smiled and pointed at Dad. We'd be suing our host here. Dad jumped to his feet and gestured for the crowd's attention. He looked absolutely frazzled. I want you all to know something. I am determined to change things. That sort of nonsense, an unsurveyed construction site, will never happen again in this county. I can't change the past, but I'm putting some big changes in place for now and for the future. The homeowners listened, then turned to the other matters. I continued on this upstairs. I have to wonder about Dad, though. He was erect just now. He was coming unglued. What is going on in his head? Tuesday, November 28th. Luis Cruz is dead. When I walked into the first period this morning, there was a group of kids standing around and whispering. Henry D. came up to me and said, Did you hear what happened? No. Tina and Teresa were waiting outside yesterday for Luis to pick them up, but he never came. Teresa came home, called home and told their father. He went out to the grove and found Luis lying there dead. Found him what? Dead, right out in the new grove. I stared at Henry like he was crazy. Dead? Are you saying that Luis is dead? That's right. Their father called 911. Wayne was one of the call, guys on call. He said Luis was dead when they got there, that he'd been dead for hours. Dead? Dead of what? Wayne said it might have been an aneurysm, like a blood clot. He thinks Luis got hit in the head. It formed into a blood clot, and that killed him. My mind was racing in circles. I finally said, what? Someone hit Luis on the head and killed him? No. Wayne said the sheriff's deputies don't think it was a murder or anything like that. They think Luis might have gotten hit in the head last Wednesday night when all those frozen tree branches were breaking off. They think maybe one of the branches hit him in the head and started the, that aneurysm thing going. But they don't know anything for sure. I put my hand over my mouth, afraid that I would throw up. I answered, he got hit in the head Wednesday night. They don't know that. They're just saying maybe. One shot to the head five, six days ago? How is that going to kill anybody? Henry could see how upset I was getting. He didn't reply. I mean, you see these guys in these kung fu movies getting hit in the head a thousand times and they keep on fighting, right? Right. I raised my hand and got Mrs. Pollard's attention. I said, I got to go. I'm sick again. I hurried into the hall, pushed past a stream of kids all the way to the, to the office. I asked to use the phone and left a quick message for mom. Come back right away. I'm sick again. An aide led me into a sterile black and white room that turned out to be the nurse's office. I slumped down into my chair, into a black chair and waited there, dry-eyed, speechless, numb. Mom returned at nine o'clock to sign me out. She told Dr. Johnson, I guess we'll send him back to school. We sent him back to school too early. I rode home in a painful trance. Finally, when we pulled into our development, mom said, this cold of yours is really bad. It's really persistent. I nodded slowly. Yeah, I thought, how could she believe that? How could she believe that I'm in the sixth day of a severe cold when I have not coughed or sneezed even one time? Has it even occurred to her that isn't the truth, that I might be making it all up? Probably not. I decided to share part of the truth with her. I said, Luis Cruz is dead. She thought for a minute. Who, honey? Luis Cruz. He's Tino and Teresa's brother. 
He was at the grove the day you drove me out there. I guess you didn't see him. He came to nearly all of our soccer games, but I guess you didn't see him there either. He used to pick tangerines on Merritt Island. He injured his knee doing that. He played goalie for Tangerine Middle School. He invented a new variety of citrus. Then a tree branch broke off and hit him on the head. I looked over at Mom. She was nodding sympathetically. Did she want to hear more? Maybe the whole trip. Did she want to hear anything bad? Should I come right out and say, actually, Mom, he wasn't killed by a tree branch. He was killed by Arthur Bauer on orders from Eric. What would she do if she heard that? Would she swerve into a utility pole? Or would she do what she always did back in Houston, take my temperature and threaten to call the doctor? I didn't say anything else. When I got to the house, I went straight to Dad's IBM and logged on. I put in the CD-ROM called Health Text and searched for aneurysm. I found out that it's not a blood clot at all. It's a weakening of a blood vessel, like a little bubble that swells out from a vein or an artery. That's all there was about it. So I got online, searched for the medical homepage. The Tangerine County Medical Center listed one called Ask a Nurse. I got into it and typed, can you get an aneurysm from an injury to the head? I received a reply right away. No, you're either born with an aneurysm or you're born with a tendency to get one. I typed in, can an aneurysm kill you? Yes, an aneurysm can burst, causing a massive stroke and death. What could cause it to burst? And the aneurysm gradually deteriorates due to a constant pressure of the blood passing through it. Could an injury to the head cause it to burst? Yes, an injury to the head could further weaken the aneurysm and cause it to burst. Would this happen right away or could it happen a week later? It could happen right away or a week after the injury or a month after, depending on the condition of the aneurysm. I typed in thank you and logged off. I had my answer. Louise had been killed by Arthur Bauer on Tuesday, but it had taken six days for him to die. That shot from the blackjack had been just as deadly to Luis as a shot from a gun. I went upstairs and lay on my bed until 3.30. Then I called Henry D. Henry, what else did you hear about Luis? I haven't heard anything new from Wayne. I did hear from Dolly that Luis's funeral is going to be on Thursday at noon. Oh, all right. I'll be there. Do you think the whole team will go? I expect so. They all knew Luis. A lot of us owed Luis um, for things. A lot of us got rides from him in that truck of his. Yeah, look, if you hear anything else, anything at all, especially from Wayne, will you please give me a call? I sure will. At dinner time, Mom knocked lightly on my door and brought in some vegetable soup and a basket of rolls. I pretended to be asleep. She put them down quietly and started to leave. But she turned and saw that my eyes were open. She said, how are you feeling, Paul? How's that cold of yours? I didn't answer, so she just smiled weakly and continued out. Wednesday, November 29th. I stayed out of school again today. I got dressed at about 10, and we went went out back to sit for a while. Mom came out with a telephone and handed it to me. Another girl, she said. A different one. I waited until she went back in to press the button. Hello? Paul Fisher? Yes, this is Teresa Cruz. Teresa, I'm really sorry to hear about what happened. She interrupted me. Her tone was all business. Yeah, I know. Look, I have to tell you something. Don't you be coming to Luis's funeral. I stammered, uh, oh, okay. Henry says you're talking about coming. But Tino and Victor and those guys are saying some bad stuff, so you'd better not show your face at Luis's funeral. I'm calling to tell you that. 
All right. Don't want any more bad stuff to happen, especially not at the funeral. No, of course not. So I'm just telling you. Then she hung up. I sat there with my mouth wide open. They know. They knew. They knew everything. Teresa, Tino, Tomas, and his brother, Victor, and the others, they all knew the truth. They all, they knew that Luis came looking for Eric last Tuesday, and they knew what happened to him at the school. They knew that he didn't get hit by any frozen tree branch. How did they know? I jumped up and hurried through the gate to the front of the house. I turned left and headed down the sidewalk. I had to get away. I had to think. My mind was racing with questions. Did Luis tell someone about it? Of course he did. If he told me about it, he told other people too. Did I really think I could keep this a secret from them all? Does everybody in Tangerine blame me now? Am I just as guilty as Eric? I was all the way down at the entrance pond before I stopped. I stood there and stared at the dark water till I finally understood. And it was so very simple. There's no big mystery here. The truth about Luis is obvious to all of the people around him. Their lives were not made up of bits and pieces of versions of truth. They don't live that way. They know what really happened, period. Why would that seem so mysterious to me? I sat on the bank and stared at the lifeless water. After a few minutes, I heard a noise behind me and turned. A little boy on a little bike had pulled up about 10 feet away. He looked to be about five years old. Not old enough to be out on the road by himself. He sat there staring at me astride his red 20 inch bike. Then he pointed at the pond and said, They said there's a gator in there. I looked back at the pond. I wanted him to leave, but he went on. They say that a gator came out of there last year and ate a kid. I turned back toward him. Oh, yeah, who says that? My mom and dad. I shook my head. We'll forget it. That didn't happen. He shook his head right back. My mom and dad say it did. I thought about it. I thought about my own mom and dad and looked him right in the eye. Then they're lying to you. They're telling you a story just so you, they can keep you scared. They want you to be scared. Do you understand? He stiffened. My mom and dad don't tell me stories. I rose up on my knee, onto my knees so we were eye to eye. Oh, no. Did they ever tell you a story about a kid who went swimming right after he ate and he got cramps and he drowned? Yeah. Well, did you ever meet that kid? No. Okay. Did they ever tell you about a kid who climbed a utility pole to get his kite back and he got electrocuted? Yeah. And did you ever meet that kid? How can I meet him if he's dead? How about a kid who got bitten by a stray dog and he got rabies and he started foaming at the mouth? They ever tell you about him? Did you ever meet him? The boy straightened out the front wheel of his bike and started to back away. My mom and dad don't lie to me. I got onto my feet, my, vi my voice rising. No? How about this one? Did they ever tell you about the kid who went out to play football in a thunderstorm and he got stuck, struck by lightning and he got killed? He shook his head. Or this one. Did they ever tell you about the kid who climbed a tree with a sharp pair of clippers in his hand and he fell out of the tree and stabbed himself? Did they, ever tell you, did they ever tell you about either one of those kids? Did you ever meet either of them? No. Well, I did. I met both of them. He continued to back away. I shouted after him. What about this one? Did you ever hear about this kid, this stupid kid, who wouldn't listen to anybody, and he stared at a solar eclipse, and he went blind? 
Did you ever hear about him? Did you ever meet him? Poor kid pedaled away as fast as he could. I didn't watch him go. I bent over and looked down at my own murky reflection in the water. Like the final words of a ghost story, I muttered, well, you have now. Thursday, November 30th. Mom left the house at 10 o'clock this morning. She was gone for most of the day. I was here alone. At exactly 12 noon, I pulled out my blue suit from the closet, the suit that I had worn to Mike Costello's funeral. Put it on without a shirt, shoes, or socks, and walked out through the patio doors into the backyard. Must have looked like an idiot. I walked straight out until I was facing the gray wall. I had no clear idea what I was going to do. I just knew that I had to do something. For a while, I stood there staring at the ground like an idiot. Then I bent forward and wedged both hands into the space between the wall and the sod. I pulled the sod up and toward me so that the whole piece of it rolled back onto my feet with its roots sticking up. Beneath it was a a rectangle of white sugar sand, two feet long and three feet wide. I got down on my knees like an idiot on that upside down piece of sod and started to scrape away the sugar sand. I scooped big handfuls of it, piling them up on either side of the rectangle until I reached the dirt below. I stared at the dirt in fascination, thinking how odd it was that I had never seen it before. This was the dirt that we lived on, the dirt of the tangerine grove that we burned, buried, and plowed under and coated with sand and landscaped over. Here it was. The sweat started to drip off my forehead, fogging up my glasses. I yanked them off and threw them over to the side. Didn't even know where they landed. Then I bent over that hole in the dirt until my face was an inch above it. Thought about Luis Cruz, a man I barely knew. I thought about Luis Cruz being lowered into this ground, never to come back up. I felt the tears start to well up deep inside of me. Once they started to come, there was no stopping them. I wept and sobbed and poured tears into the hole in the ground like an idiot. No, I don't think so. When I was finished, I stood up, brushed the dirt from my knees and my elbows, and located my glasses. I pushed the sand back into place and rolled the sod back into position. Then I came back in here and threw my suit into the garbage. It's remarkable, strange and remarkable. I feel like Luis is a part of me now. I feel like a different person. Friday, December 1st. It's nearly midnight on Friday. It's been a night to remember. Just got off the phone with Joey, called to find out if I'm all right. I think I am. In fact, I think I'm more than all right. Joey said that everybody at his party was asking about me. I guess that would include Carrie, the date I never had. I told Joey everything that I knew about tonight, and he told me what he knew. Between us, I think we managed to piece together what happened at Lake Windsor High School gym. Let me start at the beginning. I took another bogus sick day today. Mom didn't care. She seems to be having problems of her own. She spent a couple of hours on the phone this morning holding a yellow legal pad in her lap. I went walking through and heard her talking to someone at the sheriff's department. Anyway, both mom and I managed to do what dad asked to be ready at six o'clock to go to the senior awards night. I wore black pants that were too short for me and a white shirt that was too tight. Mom commented, that's it, Paul. We have to get you some new clothes this weekend, definitely. The seniors had to be at the gym at 6.30, so we... So they could learn where they were supposed to stand and what they were supposed to do. 
To Dad, this meant that we had to arrive at 6.32, even though Eric was riding with Arthur Bauer. So there we were, standing outside the south entrance to the gym an hour beforehand. Some members of the football team were still carrying risers in and setting them up in the hardwood floor. The principal, Mr. Bridges, was pacing nervously and gesturing to Coach Warner. He finally settled down when the, a pickup truck arrived towing a boat trailer. It wasn't hauling a boat, though. It was hauling a tree, a laurel oak that would be planted in Mike Costello's name. The tree was a lot bigger than I'd expected. It was about 15 feet tall, and it was growing in an enormous plastic tub full of black dirt that was almost as wide as the trailer. The driver of the truck swung around and backed up toward the gym door following Mr. Bridges' hand signals. Mr. Bridges called out to the coach, All right, now what do we have to do? How do we get it from here to the basketball court? Coach Warner disappeared inside and came back with four of his biggest seniors, including Brian Baylor. They spread out around the trailer and started talking about how to move it. Mr. Bridges opened the double doors for them, and as soon as he did, I could see Joey and his parents standing inside. On the count of three, Brian Baylor and the other guys hefted the trailer up and off the truck hitch. They started walking the trailer into the gym like a huge wheelbarrow. Everything went fine until they got to the spot where they were supposed to set it down. When Brian uh, Baylor let his end all the way down, the big tub tipped toward him. The tree branches crashed down on his head, and a huge pile of black dirt came pouring onto the gym floor. Coach Warner ducked into his office beneath the bleachers and came out with a board and a pair of cinder blocks. Brian hefted up the trailer again, and the coach slid the board and the blocks underneath it, straightening up the, out the tub. Mr. Bridges clapped his hands together and called out, All right, now let's get this dirt cleaned up. Brian Baylor and the other football guys drifted away. They had no intention of touching that dirt. I walked over and started to scoop some back into the tub. Joey joined me right away. In a few minutes, we had it all cleaned up. Joey said, Fisher, are you going to be a hero again? I looked at him, but I couldn't tell if he was being serious or sarcastic. Then he took one of his black smudged hands and made what he was going like he was going to press it into my white shirt. I backed off and we both laughed. Mr. Costello led us into Coach Warner's office where we used the bathroom sink to wash up. The only other thing that Joey said was, do you need a ride to my house tonight, you and Carrie? I said, yeah. When we came out from under the bleachers, there was a lot more activity in the gym. Mom and Dad had staked out seats just above us, about six rows up and on the side. Mom leaned over and said to me, Paul, get a program from that girl. I looked over and saw a student council girl with a blazer standing on the basketball court right next to the tree. She was holding a pile of programs. Joey and I went up to her. She turned to him and said, you're Mike's brother, aren't you? He said, yeah. She smiled and told him Mike was a really good guy. Joey just nodded. Then she pointed at me and said, and this is Eric's brother. The girl showed some mild interest. Eric Fisher? I shuffled uncomfortably. She handed me a program and added, Mr. Generosity? I must have looked really confused. She laughed and said, he sure is a great kicker, and turned to greet some new arrivals. Mr. and Mrs. Costello started gesturing to Joey to come. They had joined Mr. Donnelly on a low riser near the center court. I said to him, I'll catch you later. 
and climbed up the stairs steps to sit with mom and dad. I could see that the low riser was going to be a focal point of the ceremonies. There were six chairs on it, a table covered with trophies and a microphone stand. Behind it were three rows of risers. Each one was six inches taller than the other, the one before it. All of the bleacher sections on our side of the gym had been pulled out and they were filling up quickly. On the far side of the gym, only the center sections on both sides of the exit had been pulled out. The marching band, the Seagirls, and the rest of the football team, the guys who weren't seniors, were sitting there. I caught sight of Carrie and Kara. They were in the top row above about five sections to the right of us, near the east entrance. They were looking right at me. They smiled and waved, and I waved back. I saw a few other kids from Lake Windsor Middle School come in, Joey's friends. They all climbed up to the same section. That Adam kid was with them, but he didn't sit next to Carrie. A high-pitched wail of feedback snapped my attention back to the front riser. Mr. Bridges was standing at the microphone, getting ready to begin. He said, if everyone will take their places, we can get started. Everything was arranged in descending steps. Everything was arranged in descending steps. Across from us, against the far wall, the blue uniforms of the band members filled two sections from top to bottom. Then the white and blue robes of the chorus singers filled three risers from high to low. On the front riser were Coach Warner, Mr. Bridges, Mr. Donnelly, and the Costellos. To their right, or my left, was the Laurel Oak Oak Tree. And in the space in between, at floor level, were the other honored guests of the evening, the senior football players. The leader of the chorus raised her hand, and we all got quiet. The chorus and the band performed a song called Try to Remember. After the song, Mr. Donnelly took over the microphone. He talked about sportsmanship and about how Mike Costello was a role model. He read some lines from a poem called To an Athlete Dying Young. Mr. Donnelly then called on the the president of the student council, a tall guy in a blazer, to come up and read a statement about the laurel oak tree. The statement was a lot longer than it needed to be. He read a long list of names of people who had helped make this possible. I found my attention drifting back to the right, about five rows up. But when I looked over there, my eyes never got past the east entrance. I bent forward and heard myself whisper, oh my God. There they stood, Tino and Victor. It was like a mirage. It was impossible. They couldn't be here, and yet they were. They were standing together on the sideline, staring straight ahead, hard-eyed, totally focused like the wrath of God. They continued to stare at the front, and I continued to stare at them. As the student council guy finished, and Mr. Donnelly returned to the microphone, he began to introduce the senior football players, reading them from the program listing. Brett Andrews, Arthur Bauer, Brian Baylor. I looked back at Mr. Donnelly. He was relaxed, smiling, totally unaware of any problem. As he read each player's name, the player walked out and stood facing us in front of the people on the riser. Terry Donnelly, John Drew, Eric Fisher. I looked back to Tino and Victor, and my blood turned cold. I became terrified. What had they come here to do? I didn't have to wait to find out. Tino took off at a brisk walk down the sideline, Victor right behind him. They silently closed in on the front riser as Mr. Donnelly continued to read names. And then, But then suddenly, Mr. Donnelly became aware of their presence. He stopped reading. 
looked up at the two of them marching forward and smiled. He could almost see the wheels turning in his head. Something like, had he forgotten to introduce these youngsters that were that so they could come up and read the poem they had written? He soon had his answer. Mr. Donnelly and the rest of us watched in absolute silence as Tino crossed the hardwood floor and walked directly up to Eric. Eric never saw it coming. Tino brought his right leg up around and around into a vi- in a vicious karate kick that doubled Eric over and filled the gym with a sickening whoa sound from his emptying, emptying lungs. Then Tino stepped back, measuring the distance, and brought his knee up into Eric's face. A sharp sound, like the snapping of a twig, echoed in the gym. Then Tino, his voice trembling with rage and choked with tears, shouted, That's for Luis Cruz. I take care of her as light work. I could sense Dad standing up next to me. That's all he did. He stood up and stared at Tino. Everyone on the floor, on the risers, and in the sand seemed frozen in place. The first person to move was Arthur Bauer. He moved toward Eric, I suppose to protect him from further damage, but he never got there. Victor took off in a full sprint. Arthur turned just as Victor's head drove into his midsection. Arthur went flying backward into Brian Baylor who pushed him away. Suddenly, all of the people in the stands were released, and they went crazy, jumping up and screaming and yelling. Victor jumped on Arthur, started pummeling him furiously, landing roundhouse blows to his head so fast that his arms were a blur, like the nylon strings on a weed whacker. Coach Warner bellowed above the rest of the voices, grab them, grab them. Some of the players obeyed. They jumped Victor from behind and pulled him off Arthur Bauer. Coach Warner himself grabbed Tino, who was still standing over Eric's prostrate body. But Victor could not be held. One of his captors slipped and fell in the blood that had spilled out of Eric's nose. Victor broke free and ran. The seniors chased him and trapped him like a snarling wolf against the emergency exit door. They charged at him, hit him, and drove him into the red bar that says alarms will sound. And that's exactly what happened. The alarm went off. The door flew open. Victor slipped their grasp and was off, running into the night. Mr. Bridges took the microphone and started pleading for order. But Coach Warner was screaming over him, screaming that the players who'd let Victor get away. He twisted Victor's uh, Tino's arm into a hammerlock and started walking him quickly toward the sideline, toward his office, toward me. All I remember next is mom shouting Paul as I took off flying through the air. I landed hard on Coach Warner's back and held him tight right in his neck and shoulders. He lurched to the side, losing his grip on Tino. I felt one huge hand come around and grab my hair, yanking me forward right over his head. I bounced off the floor just as Tino hit the exit door. He, too, was gone into the night. I got pulled to my feet by a couple of football players who dragged me under the bleachers and into the coach's office. I thought they were going to beat me up. Then Dad burst in the room along with Coach Warner. I was relieved for about two seconds. Then Dad himself was in my face, grabbing me by the shirt and screaming, I ought to kill you for that. Are you crazy? Coach Warner seemed a little more in control. He pointed a big finger at me and demanded to know, who are they? I stared him down, which made Dad even matter. He screamed, you heard the man, who are they? I stared, down, I stared Dad down too. He turned to Coach Warner and reported, my wife thinks they're on the, his soccer team the Tangerine Middle School soccer team. 
The coach shook his head slowly and asked dad the big question, the question that everybody in the gym had to be asking, why? Dad worked his jaw muscles at a complete loss for words. At the same time, he loosened his grip on my shirt. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw that the coach had an emergency exit door out of his own. I didn't hesitate. I hit the red bar at full speed and never looked back. I I sprinted across the parking lot, around the football stadium, and out onto Route 89. I ran for my life at full speed like I was sprinting down the sideline of an endless soccer field. I kept that pace up all the way to Lake Windsor Downs. I veered off onto the perimeter road and stumbled along over the packed dirt until I found myself at the wall behind our house. Then I stopped still, clutching my side, gasping for air, doubled over in pain. When I was able to, I looked up at the wall. The pain had been cleaned off, the words still were still faintly visible in the moonlight. Seagulls suck. I stood steady in that wall for many minutes. Then I felt headlights on me, too high up to be a car headlights. I turned and watched the land cruiser pulling up slowly and unevenly in the rutted dirt. Eric and Arthur stayed inside for a minute, invisible behind the tinted glass. Then a bolt of light shot into my eyes, snapping my head back. It was the land cruiser center spotlight. Huge, bright, and powerful like a setting sun. Eric and Arthur opened their doors and got out, leaving the motor running and the headlights on. They stepped around in front so that the lights were on me while they remained in shadow. Still, I could see that their faces were swollen and bloody. And I could see that Eric was holding a metal baseball bat in one hand. I understood that I was supposed to be terrified by this spectacle. These two demonic creatures on the dark, lonely road. But for once in my life, I wasn't. I stepped forward and faced them, just as I had seen Luis do. I held my hands out as he had done, and I said, I'm not afraid of you, Eric. Come on. Eric stood in his pose, not moving, but Arthur did move. He produced the blackjack and began to tap it on his hand. I thought to myself, can you really be that stupid? Can you really still be carrying around the murder weapon? When they finally f- spoke, it wasn't terrifying. It was lame. They started in on the same routine as always. Eric made his remarks and Arthur repeated them as if nothing in their pathetic lives had changed, as if they had not just been beaten up by a pair of seventh graders in front of the entire football team and 500 other people. Eric posed and talked and then Arthur repeated, you're going to pay for what happened tonight. Oh, yeah, you're going to pay. You're going to wish tonight had never happened. Oh, yeah. Couldn't stand it. Took another step forward and challenged him. Come on, Eric. Let's see if you can do any better with me than you did with Tino. Eric stopped, his rhythm broken. I could see that his nose was pushed over to one side. He tried to ignore my interruption. He poked the bat at me. We'll see what's going to happen to you. We'll decide what's going to happen to you. We'll decide. Maybe you'll be in the right place and but maybe it'll be the wrong time. Oh yeah, it'll be the wrong time. And then it'll happen. Took another step forward. Now I could see the swelling around Arthur's eyes and said, I've already been in the right place at the wrong time, you low-life creeps, you pathetic losers. I was under the bleachers on Tuesday afternoon. I raised my finger like it was loaded and I pointed it at Arthur. I saw you kill Louise Cruz. Arthur's swollen eyes widened and he took a step backward. Eric shot a quick look at him. Then he turned back to me. Who's going to believe you, you blind little geek? 
You're blind. You can't see 10 feet in front of you. Nobody's going to listen to you. Eric stared at me with growing fury, with growing hatred, moving the bat in a tight circle. I could see that his, that his eyes, too, were starting to swell closed. I ignored him. I continued to speak to Arthur. And I'm not the only one who saw it. Eric snapped. He's lying. But Arthur had heard enough. He said, come on, let's get out of here. Eric shouted, he's lying, he's lying, he's lying, until he completely lost control. He started smashing the bat into the mud ruts in front of him, grunting with rage at every blow. Then he turned and unleashed a furious shot at the right headlight of the Land Cruiser. The glass exploded, sparks flew, and lights buttered out. Arthur's voice was trembling, pleading, come on, come on, let's get out of here. Arthur, er, Eric was still in a rage. He was talking to Arthur. Bauer, but he was staring at me when he roared, shut up, caster. Then deep breath by deep breath, the rage started to recede. Eric backed up step by step. He turned and threw the bat into the land cruiser. He got in and Arthur got in and they drove quickly away. He drove away, leaving the name caster hanging in the air like some horrible apparition, like the key to a lock like the solution to an unsolved crime. I turned my head slowly back toward the wall. I remembered something from long ago, a silver gray wall. It started, it surrounded a development called Silver Meadows, where we lived when I was four and five years old. I remember Castor, Vincent Castor. He was Eric's goon back and then. He followed Eric around and did whatever he was told. I remembered spray paint on the wall. Eric and Vincent Castor had, a can, had found a can of white spray paint. And they had painted something on that gray wall. I didn't even know what it was. I never did. Just knew that Eric and Vincent Castor had done it. All the kids in the development knew that. But I had never told anybody about it. I remembered coming out to play in the morning and not being able to find any of my friends. Where were they? Did they know something? Do they know what was going to happen to me? I remembered walking into our garage and hearing Eric's voice, cold and menacing. He said, you're going to have to pay for what you did. I said, what? I didn't do anything. You're going to have to pay for telling on Castor. You told who sprayed paint on the wall and Castor got in trouble. Castor doesn't like getting into trouble. I turned around and saw Vincent Castor. He was holding a can of spray paint. Then I felt Eric grab me from behind, easily pinning both of my arms with just one of his. I could hear my voice crying, I didn't tell, I didn't tell. And I remembered Eric's fingers prying my eyelids open while Victor, or Vincent Castor, sprayed white paint into them. They left me screaming and rolling on the, ground, on the floor of the garage. Mom came out and tried to drag me over to the hose to rinse out my eyes, but I fought like a wildcat. She managed to push me into the backseat of the car and drive me to the hospital. Somewhere, somewhere around that time, so they say, there was an eclipse of the sun. I didn't remember that, but I remembered all the rest. I stood for a little while longer until I was sure there was nothing else to remember. I climbed over the wall, hopped down, and crossed the yard to my back door, to the back door. Mom and Dad were sitting on stools at the breakfast nook, looking at a yellow legal pad when I walked in. They were ready to jump on me, no doubt about it. But I jumped first. I said to mom, do you remember Vincent Castor from Silver Meadows? Mom and dad looked at each other. 
There was no question about it. They remembered. Do you remember him, Mom? Dad? That he was the Arthur Bauer of his day? Mom turned deathly pale. She said, what's this all about, pal? Dad tried to regain control. Listen, there are questions that need to be answered about tonight. I exploded. No, no, sir. I yanked off my Coke bottle glasses and shook them at him in rage. There are questions that need to be answered about these. Am I such a stupid idiot fool that I stared at a solar eclipse for an hour and blinded myself? Is that who I am? Am I that idiot? They didn't answer. They didn't look at me. They didn't even seem to be breathing. Dad was looking down at the yellow legal pad, and he said, You were five years old. There was only so much you could understand. All that you could understand was that something bad had happened. Mom spoke with her eyes closed as if she were, weren't really there, as if she were coming in over the radio. I was so terrified that you would be blind. But the news wasn't all bad. They told me that you would not be blind. They told me that your eyes would heal slowly. Her eyes opened, but her voice started to fade away. They told me that you might lose your peripheral vision, or you might not, but you would not be blind. That was the good news. Then mom started to cry with her face still frozen like a statue. She started to cry. I lowered my voice and said to her, let me ask you one thing, mom. When you got home from the hospital that day, did you see the white paint on Eric's hands? She didn't hesitate. Yes. Did you know what happened? Yes. No one spoke for a couple of minutes. Dad continued to ex examine the legal pad in front of him. Then he said, the doctors told us that you might never remember, and we figured that that was the best way to handle the situation. He shook his head sadly. We wanted to find a way to keep you from always hating your brother. I answered, so you figured it would be better that if I just hated myself? That did it. Dad was finished. He broke down. It was frightening to see. He didn't cry like a statue. He cried like a baby. After a minute, I left him standing there, snuffling and feeling sorry for themselves. And I came upstairs. That brings me up to Joey's phone call, asking me if I'm all right. I am all right. I'm more than all right. Finally.